Good morning again. Uh, As always, it is a privilege and a joy to be able to proclaim God's Word to you. I did want to go ahead and thank you for your vote of confidence last week. Uh, I realized in the middle of the week that I never actually told you that I accepted your call. So if if there was any doubt, uh, I humbly and happily accept the call to pastor this church. Uh, Lauren and I are thrilled to be a part of this church, and I am very grateful for the opportunity to continue to pastor you and minister God's Word to you. Uh, We love you very much. If you have your Bibles with you, would you please turn to 1 Peter chapter 3? We're going to be looking at verses 13 to 17 today. Have you ever thought about how many different things people fear? We even have words for particular fears. Arachnophobia, is the fear of spiders. Claustrophobia is the fear of enclosed spaces. We're afraid of heights, snakes, the dark, and even clowns. We fear worse things, though. Someone we love getting sick or dying. Not having enough money for the future. Or someone we love turning their back on us. But every time you see a poll about what people's biggest fears are, public speaking always ranks near the top. Now, I find that interesting, not because public speaking is easy, but because of the phenomenon of social media. Since social media came around, many of us have posted long, personal thoughts and opinions on the internet. Some of you only do that once every few weeks or months, but some of you do that multiple times a day. Essentially, anyone who posts on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook is speaking publicly. And yet, public speaking continues to rank near the top of those polls about people's greatest fears. This means that it isn't just sharing our thoughts, even sharing personal or contentious thoughts that causes fear in us. It seems that a difference between the two is that personal, physical interaction you get when you speak in person. Seeing people's eyes looking back at you. Seeing the expressions on their face as they listen. Confusion, attentiveness, frustration, enjoyment, or disagreement. Those are things you don't get on the internet. In our text today, Peter finally addresses the topic of speech toward outsiders. If you notice, he said a ton up to this point about how we are to interact with those outside the church, those in the society around us, But everything so far has been about what we do, our actions, our conduct. He even went so far at the beginning of chapter 3 as to say that Christian wives might win their husbands to Christ without a word. But today, he tells us that we are to say something. Our witness is not just about our actions, but also 
about our words. And he acknowledges from the outset that this is going to cause fear in many of us. So before, how we, hear, before we hear how the Lord addresses our fears and what he commands of us, let's go and ask that he would help us as we hear his word. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, as we read your holy word, I ask that you would give us your spirit of wisdom and revelation, that we might know your Son, Jesus Christ, better. Open our minds, our hearts, and our wills so that we may hear your word and believe it. Overcome our fearful hearts and show us your path of life. Speak, Holy Spirit. Your people are listening. Amen. This is 1 Peter chapter 3, beginning in verse 13. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for, the re- for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. This is the word of the Lord. Now there isn't an outline in your bulletin this morning, but if you are an outline person, uh, a simple outline of where we are going this morning is suffering, speaking, and suffering. Verse 13 through the first half of verse 14 talk about suffering. And when we're there, I especially want us to have a clear picture of the broad range of suffering that Peter is talking about. We're going to spend most of our time focusing on that one sentence that runs from the second half of verse 14 all the way through verse 16. It starts with, have no fear of them, and then ends with, put to shame. This is where Peter focuses on our speech to the unbelieving world around us. And then verse 17 ends by talking about suffering again. And here God assures us that obedience is better, even when obedience means suffering. So first we're going to look at verse 13 through the first half of 14 to get clear what kind of suffering Peter has been and is talking about. That first rhetorical question is, now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? And our temptation is to say, no one. No one's trying to harm me or persecute me or cause me to suffer. And you may have this idea of suffering only looking like Stephen being stoned or Paul being thrown in prison or Christians being killed in gladiator games in the Roman Colosseum. And that's what you think Peter is talking about. Now, I want to be clear, these things do happen. Those things did happen to Christians, but they also still happen to Christians. There are governments 
and societies and individuals right now in the world that are physically violent toward Christians. But we miss the mark if we think that is the only kind of suffering that the Bible is talking about. Physical persecution is not the only or even the primary suffering that Christians endure. The word suffer shows up 18 times in this short letter of 1 Peter. Some of those are about the sufferings of Christ, but most of them are about us suffering as Christians. But have you paid attention to how Peter has described that suffering in this letter? He's described it as rejection, people calling us evildoers, people saying ignorant and foolish words about us. He's described that suffering as being reviled, slandered, maligned, and insulted. All of those are speech. None of them are physical violence. When Peter talks about suffering, he is primarily talking about the suffering that comes from the things people say to you or say about you. This is the suffering that comes when you are reminded that you are a stranger and an alien in this world. It's the suffering of an exile. Now with that in mind, hear again the question that Peter asks. Who is there to harm you? if you are zealous for what is good? Lots of people. There are plenty of people ready to mock you and give you an awkward look and whisper about you and laugh at you if you zealously or enthusiastically live for God. In this letter, Peter's already mentioned many ways that can happen and will happen. That's why we have such a temptation to tamp down our Christianity to take the sharp edges off of it. We'll obey God's law, but only when it makes sense to us. Or only when it won't cause people to think that we're weird. We want to avoid the difficulty that comes from living a devout and dedicated Christian life. We want to avoid suffering. But Peter tells us that when we do that, we are making a bad choice. As he has said again and again, he says here, but even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. The word blessed is makarios, which means happy. Christian suffering will not steal away your happiness or your joy. This is a promise from God. Cling tightly to it. That brings us to the command that God gives in this passage. The command is nested in a lot of words about the right attitude we are to have, but it's in the middle of this sentence that we're told what to do. Would you read it with me, starting in the second half of verse 14? He says, Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. 
always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. This is the heart of this passage, and as I said a minute ago, this is the first place that Peter has commanded us to speak to the outside world. It's telling that Peter's waited so long to to command us to speak. Many of us are tempted to let our words be our first response, especially if we are being slandered or mocked. Remember this command that we are not to revile those who revile us. Peter said several times that we are primarily to silence those people with our good works and godly living. When they accuse you of doing evil, prove them wrong by showing them the beauty and the goodness of God's law. The Christian's first and primary response to slander is to live a holy and peaceful life. That's what Peter has told us so far. But that isn't our only response. Ultimately, God tells us that we must speak. Now, some of us in here would love if God's command stopped with living a holy and peaceful life. You would love to never have to say a word to people about your Christian faith. But God doesn't stop at right living. He also commands you to speak. Specifically, He commands you to speak about the reason for the hope that is in you. Notice that He doesn't tell us to spend our words defending ourselves or defending our honor. Also notice that He doesn't just tell us that we are to tell people about our hope. We are to tell them the reason for the hope that we have. This means that we are to tell people the content of the Christian faith. This is where we really need to dig in, because what is the content of the Christian faith? Often when we think of evangelism, we think about questions like, if you were to die tonight, do you know whether you would go to heaven? Or listing off the Ten Commandments, asking people if they have broken any of them, and then telling them that the wages of sin are death. Now, I don't think there's anything necessarily wrong with those approaches, but the problem with those approaches is what they assume the other person already believes. They assume a vast agreement on the way the world works. They assume the person believes all kinds of things about God and humanity and morality. The problem is that many of the people that you rub shoulders with don't share those beliefs or even those categories. One of the problems with our approach to evangelism is that we don't realize how radical and earth-shattering the content of the Christian faith is. Your next-door neighbor doesn't just believe in works righteousness and need to hear the message of salvation by grace alone. He or she believes that the world is a random collision of molecules. And so the world and humanity have no ultimate purpose. They don't just not know the way to heaven. They think the world is all there is. They don't just not believe in the orthodox doctrine of the Trinity. They think if there is a God, He is probably unknowable and unconcerned with their life. They probably know the word sin, 
But they assume sin is just some random taboo, not a violation of God's eternal character. Most people are not walking around with a fairly developed understanding of the Christian faith, and they just need a little clarity on how we are to be saved. They're walking around with a completely different worldview, a different idea of God, the world, what a human is, of what the good life is, of sin and salvation and judgment, if they even have those categories. Now this ought to cause a couple of different things in us. First, it should cause you to ask a lot of questions when you are talking with people about their lives and what they believe. One reason is you shouldn't assume that you know what they believe about anything. And finding out what they believe is essential to explaining the hope of the Christian faith to them. But another reason you should ask questions is because they likely haven't thought a ton about their core beliefs. What we're doing in here right now, examining what we believe and why we believe it and how it affects our lives in the world around us is not a common weekly practice for people. So asking them questions about their core beliefs is likely going to get them thinking about things they don't normally think about. But there's another thing this realization should cause us to do. It should cause us to learn the Christian faith thoroughly. Throughout Holy Week this week, we will reflect on the shocking and radical truth that the Son of God, who became human, died and rose again to save us from our sins. That is the core and the heart of the Christian message, but there is so much that is undergirding and flowing from that story. We believe in a God who isn't needy or lonely, but is infinitely powerful and also infinitely happy. He isn't lonely. Instead, He has existed from eternity in joyful fellowship with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We don't believe that this happy and loving... No, we do believe that this happy and loving God created humanity in His image so that we could have joyful fellowship with Him. He created the world good to reflect His glory and creativity and beauty, but He also created it raw and told mankind to fill it and to cultivate it. We believe that sin isn't just breaking some arbitrary rule. It's rejecting the joy and fellowship that God intended for us. It's rejecting God Himself and how He created us to live. And we believe that the entrance of sin into the world doesn't just affect our relationship with God, but our bodies, our brains, the physical world around us, and the way we relate to each other. We could go on and on. All of these things are a different message than the various messages the world around us teaches and believes and lives in. And all of the Christian message contributes to our hope and joy and comfort. So it is an implication that we all need to be diligent and hardworking to know the breadth of the Christian message. Theology isn't just for professionals or nerds who like to read a lot or people who are super spiritual. Theology is the privilege of 
all God's people, but it is also the responsibility of all God's people. God commands all of us to always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. He doesn't just command that of pastors and elders and deacons. He commands it of men, women, children, those who have tons of free time and those who have none, those who work white-collar jobs and blue-collar jobs, college students, and stay-at-home moms. We are all commanded to be ready. So are you ready? When a friend laments that the world is going to hell in a handbasket, are you ready to tell them that it is actually going to be remade in glory and splendor? When your neighbor sees you suffering and asks how you can bear it, are you ready to tell them that not a hair can fall from your head without the will of your heavenly Father? When a classmate says she likes Jesus but believes He was just a good person, who taught us all how to love, are you ready to explain to her that He was actually fully God and fully man and has saved us from our sins? And those are just the kinds of conversations you might have with people outside the faith. Not to mention the questions about the Trinity that your nine-year-old has. Or the things your Christian co-workers say about being healed if you just have enough faith. Or the encouragement you are told to give one another from God's Word. All of these things demand that we be good, trained, healthy theologians. Theology is not just so that you can pass an exam or impress your Bible study. Theology is for life. It teaches you how to live and worship and trust in God. And it helps you help others do the same. Are you ready to do that? This may feel like a shameless plug, but I wholeheartedly, truly encourage all of you to come to the Intro to Christian Theology classes when they start back again in the fall. They are for everyone, not just theology nerds. They are meant to help us to be ready to give a reason for the hope that is in us. We need that for ourselves when the doctor tells us that the disease is back. We need that for one another, when one of us is tempted to think that sin is the good life. We need that for our kids, when they hear a different message in the world around them. And we need that for our neighbor, when they are living with false hope or no hope. Brothers and sisters, work diligently to make yourself ready to give the reason for your hope. Now surrounding this call to speak, to witness to the good news of the Gospel, Peter gives two attitudes that we should have. I'm going to start with the second. He says, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. God is not happy with us if we say the right things to unbelievers, but ruin our witness by how we say it. We must speak, but we must speak with gentleness and respect. 
you need to recognize that the call to speak the Christian message is a call to voice disagreement. When you tell someone what the Christian faith is, you are not just tossing out ideas that they can take or leave or giving them your perspective. Paul says to the super spiritual Greeks in Athens that God commands all people everywhere to repent because He has fixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness by Jesus. Our message is a message that eventually demands a response. But because of the confrontational nature of that message, Peter says that we must deliver it with gentleness, with meekness, with humility. Evangelism is not about a triumphant gotcha moment where you back your opponent into an intellectual corner. As someone once said, evangelism is one beggar telling the other beggars where to find the bread. This is the attitude of humility and gentleness we should have when we speak. The second word there is respect. Respect means that when we ask questions, we actually listen to their answers. We aren't just waiting for the angle we're going to take in our next comment. In other words, our motive is love. We aren't speaking to someone to tell our friends a great story about an argument we've won. We're not doing it so that we can put another notch in our belt if they become a Christian. We are trying to save them. We are trying to offer them life in the midst of death. We are pointing them to the one who is life himself. You cannot do that if you don't love them. And if you do love them, you will do it with gentleness and respect. That's the first attitude God commands when we speak. The second attitude is to have the right kind of fear. Or rather, the right direction of our fear. Peter says, beginning in the second half of verse 14, Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy. Why does God need to give us this command? Because we, He knows that we have a temptation to let fear of other people drive our actions. As we talked about at the beginning, public speaking is one of the greatest fears of most of the people in America. And even though this kind of speaking is often one-on-one or in a small group, there is something about opening our mouths in front of other people and telling them what we think, what we believe, that incites fear in us. Peter says, Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy. Peter's actually quoting from the prophet Isaiah when he says this. Isaiah chapter 8, in Isaiah chapter 8, the Israelites are afraid of the Assyrian army who is coming to take them captive. And Isaiah says to them, Do not fear them, nor be in dread, but the Lord of hosts, Him you shall honor as holy. Let Him be your fear, and let Him be your dread. The first thing to notice is the subtle change that Peter makes in the quote. Peter inserts the word Christ 
alongside Lord. Israel was told not to fear their enemies, but to honor and fear Yahweh, the God of their fathers, the one who led armies or hosts. Peter identifies Jesus as that God. Jesus is Yahweh. Jesus is the God of our fathers. He is the God who leads armies in victory. And it's that conviction, it's that belief, not just in our minds, but in our hearts, that overcomes our fear of other people. It's not that your fear goes away. It's that it is overwhelmed by a greater fear, a joyful and loving fear of Jesus. Every risk, every awkward moment, every cutting response or blank stare is worth it because of Jesus. It's worth it because, as Peter says in verse 14, even if you suffer, you will be blessed by Jesus. But it's also worth it because Jesus is worth it for them. The people you are talking to aren't just living with a little lower quality of life. They aren't just missing out on a little bit of comfort or joy that you have. People who do not trust in Jesus are plunging themselves into destruction. They are caught in the snares of sin. They are walking around with the wrath and condemnation of God hanging over them. And if they do not repent of their sins and call out to Jesus for mercy, if you do not repent of your sins and call out to Jesus for mercy, you will spend eternity apart from God in hell. This is what we believe. What could be more fearful than that? Do you love those people? Do you believe that the Word of God is true? If so, you must speak to them. Brothers and sisters, we must overcome our fears and our complacency to speak the Word of God. We must do it with love and with gentleness and respect. We must do it filled with good and true knowledge of God's Word. But for the love of those who are perishing, we must speak. Peter ends with an amazing statement in verse 17. He says, For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. This is a theme Peter has picked up again and again in this letter. That there are different kinds of suffering. There's a kind of suffering that happens to you when you do evil. Sometimes our suffering is a result of our sin. But Peter says that there are even sometimes we suffer for doing good. And each of the other times he said this, he's contrasted a right response with a sinful response. He does the same here. Doing good in this verse is obeying God's command to speak to the unbelieving world. And doing evil is refusing to speak. It's being silent when God has commanded you to open your mouth. But look at the promise. Look at the promise that He gives in the face of our fears. It is better. It is better. Isn't this our fear? Our fear is that it will be worse if we say the wrong thing or make a mistake or get a bad response 
What if they don't like me anymore? What if they think I'm preachy or intolerant now? Jesus tells you that even if it means suffering, it is better to obey. It is better to speak. Verse 14 tells you that you will be blessed by Jesus. Brothers and sisters, if you are anything like me, when you hear these words, you look back on a string of missed opportunities. Times that you could have spoken, but you were too scared or felt too awkward or made excuses. We should be sad and regretful of those missed opportunities. But praise God that repentance is always offered. Pray for more opportunities. Pray for boldness and conviction. Read and study and fill yourself up with God's Word and clarity about the Christian message. Be ready to speak with gentleness, respect, and love. And then speak. Give a reason for the hope that is in you. Proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Would you all pray with me? Father, we say at the end of every service, with the Lord's help, we will do this. And we confess that we desperately need your help. We care so much about whether people like us, people in this room and people outside of this room. Lord, we pray that we would long for your smile and for pleasing you more than pleasing others. I pray that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit. That we would long for others to know the joy of union and communion with Christ. And that you would compel us outward. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.